I'm Jill Anderson. This is the Harvard EdCast. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is a growing focus for many colleges and universities, but the intent behind this work and how it's done varies tremendously. Richard Reddick has been doing this work for a long time. Now, as the inaugural Associate Dean for Equity, Community Engagement, and Outreach at the University of Texas in Austin, he's leading equity and inclusion efforts. We talked about what diversity work is and isn't, and really why it's some of the most vital work being done on college campuses today. When you think about anything concerning diversity, equity, and inclusion, those are typically systemic things. Mm -hmm. So mentoring students is something everybody should be doing creating an inclusive environment we all should be doing but then there's this idea that well that's the chief diversity officer's job so they should be doing that kind of work so then they're overwhelmed with the responsibilities the other thing is and no offense to my friends who teach physics it's it's not physics it's interpersonal right it's a lot of reflective experiences i actually wrote a piece with some colleagues about self-care for diversity educators because a lot of this is taxing work on the psyche. My friends who do this work who identify as queer, when they are talking about homophobia or other sort of prejudices towards queer people, they're talking about things that have happened to them. A lot of us have this part of training in our jobs, right? We do trainings of some kind. And you're working with people who have all levels of immersion, experience, interest, concern. And they can say things in those spaces that are quite harmful and hurtful. And you have to kind of say, okay, thank you for that contribution. And, you know, if you sort of lose it, then you've lost credibility as an educator. And in fact, um, that article came out uh, because of the team I worked with at Texas. We were bringing on another team member to work with our diversity education team. And we asked our new uh, colleague, how do you manage your self-care? We didn't ask about your knowledge in the air. We're like, how do you take care of yourself? Because this job requires it. Do you do kickboxing? Do you do yoga? You know, do you read? Going into doing a session and when people have completely unexamined biases and they're kind of just spouting them out, you're sitting there hearing it. So oftentimes we work in pairs because of that moment. Because I cannot be here in this moment. This is just too much. So that person can walk out. You can keep the session moving. So yeah, um, it's often relegated to the chief diversity officer, but I think most chief diversity officers would respond that I don't mind leading this work, I don't mind being the convener of this work, but it's not just my job. seems like there's a lot of people who this is a first for them having these types of roles across universities and colleges, but for people who aren't at the table for some of these DEI committee meetings, it might seem a little bit out of left field. Like mm. all of a sudden we now have all these DEI events or yeah. meetings or training opportunities. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can help break it down a little bit more to just understand the need for this type of stuff to be yeah. happening. It's been easy to identify the fact that this actually is a need. And I think also let's credit students, especially in the last 10 to 15 years, who have really, in fact, uh, we were just talking about, you know, the Missouri student Mm -hmm. uh, uprising and how that really has shaped how students respond to this because there, but for the grace of God, go a number of institutions. Missouri's response 
was not unlike a lot of institutional responses. They didn't have an apparatus to respond to that. More importantly, they didn't have an apparatus to kind of chart and sort of know what was going on. So probably about the time of Missouri, I got calls from the Chronicle of Higher Ed, and they were like, okay, what's up with this role? What are the responsibilities of somebody in this particular position? And unfortunately, a lot of times still, it's like responding to negative campus climate. That's one part of it, but it shouldn't be about sort mm -hmm. of structural change so you can actually ameliorate the situation before it becomes that kind of right. situation. And I think what it means when you have a diverse student population and a diverse faculty, or a diversifying faculty, I should say, people will start pointing out inequities. Like, you've been fine with this situation the way it is, but now there are more of us here who hold these identities. This isn't working. And it's nice to have somebody to be able to think broadly about what it means. But then also keep in mind that diversity is simple representation. Like that's happening demographically, like in Texas where I live, uh, Massachusetts and California, we're having a rapidly diversifying population. What inclusion means is actually going beyond the numbers and actually bringing people to have a, a common shared valued experience. And of course, equity means ensuring that people have access to resources, rewards, all those things. It's important to also make the point that like any major important role, recruiting, retention, these are responsibilities we all have as institutional partners, right? But it's helpful to have somebody who is charting the course, who is able to assess the progress, and also speak truth to power. This is kind of an uncomfortable job in some ways because you're the person who has to kind of be the canary in the coal mine. Like, this is not going well. This is a problem. The work we did in the 2000s with the National Campus Diversity Project, we started noticing that there were people in institutions that had positions that were looking at student success for underrepresented minority students. And we also noticed that institutions making the most progress were having those folks in centralized positions. So you look at the flow chart and you've got this sort of sprawling framework and they're on the very corner right there. Then it's like, how much you know, authority does that person actually have? When we saw it when it was like kind of this centralized thing and it's like the president, the provost, this person doing diversity work right there, you have the institutional emphasis from that leadership. I always tell people who are interested in these kind of positions like leadership matters. If you can't get a commitment from a president or a provost or a vice president in this role, if you're not a vice president, then you might want to seriously reconsider the job because it works best when you can actually say, I am speaking ex cathedra. Like, literally, right. I am speaking from the perspective of the president or the provost or a VP or, whoever, or the dean, whoever it is, because that's how important this work is. Like, we wouldn't have a vice president of research as, like, somebody on the reporting chain who's got four different supervisors like that person goes to the president right mm -hmm. so institutionally i think when we see it closely aligned to the leadership structure that's when success matters and of course i wouldn't have taken this job without having a visionary leader who wants to see these changes who i can confide in who trusts me so those kinds of things are very essential to these roles because I've seen these roles and people like run screaming from them because it <laughs> takes so much from you. Yeah. And if you don't feel you've got that uh, complete support, then it's a very isolating position to be in. 
Right. Just the fact that it is kind of in some ways a whole new field. It's come under some criticism mm -hmm. for taking a lot of funding from mm -hmm. certain positions. Uh, there's folks who have been in the field working in the space. There are national organizations focused on chief diversity officers. The role itself is probably new, but the work's been being done in different mm -hmm. places. And now uh, institutions have decided this is a best practice to actually have somebody in that role. And there is this sort of conversation about the administrative bloat, right? You know, is that another administrator you're paying for? The way I see it is this. If you're not investing in this work, and, and you have to take the sort of premise that for predominantly white institutions, you've got historical, structural racism and equity built in, right? Mm -hmm. We were talking about Ruth Simmons, and Ruth Simmons famously, when she was president at Brown, started talking about Ivy League connections to slavery. So it's baked in. But... The question is, what do you do with that knowledge when you have it? Do you just kind of say, well, that's the way it was? Or do you actually start realizing that a lot of inequity today goes back to the founding institution, institutional mission, who's been historically excluded from the institution? So, yes, you absolutely need to sort of recognize that it's a condition of being part of our societal milieu. The other part, of course, is moving towards action. So what's the plan going forward? And then students are expecting us to have better responses. I mean, maybe students 20 years ago were like, hey, diversity is a good thing. We want more. And I, I was that student generation who wanted diversity and we want to see more people like us. Now students are saying, now that there are people on campus who resemble us and we can create a critical mass and we can actually say, we want to see systemic changes actually take place. That's as it should be. So. I think it's an appropriate response. If anything, it's a late response. We are sort of confronting, you know, severely ingrained and historical inequities. We have to think about what that means. It's not sufficient to say, well, bad things happened in the past. Unless you're doing things to reimagine, reconstruct, and actually uh, reflect on your historical inequity, it won't get any better. Right. You know, you had mentioned when you meet with education leaders or teach workshops with them, I'm curious, is there something they're all talking about? I hear a lot of fear. Mm -hmm. People are worried about doing or saying or behaving in the wrong way. And one thing at IEM we talk about is authentic leadership. For leaders, it's important to have a connection to your own story. How did you get here? How do you understand issues of equity and inequality? You may have lived them, right? And some people assume that, oh, well, unless you're a person of color or a queer person or a woman, you could be a white male and you could talk about experiences you've had as a first-generation college student, for instance. So that's an important piece of it. But I often hear people hesitant because they think they're going to say or do the wrong thing. And I'm like, well, you have to create an environment where you're all constantly learning. Mm -hmm. So yes, if you set yourself up as an expert and you fail at that, you'll be called out for that. I also hear a lot about the concern about talking across difference, right? Folks who've been doing this work for some time who've really asked the questions, how do we start talking about how we are different? And how do we have challenging conversations about that, especially at a time where the political discourse in this country has become so polarized? And people often link their political beliefs to racial, ethnic, gender, sexuality, those are all sort of commingled. What I've tried to do is, first of all, to do this work from humility, right? To never assume, I have done the research, I've done the reading, 
but I am constantly learning and I don't want to ever be in a space where I feel like, well, I'm an expert at this and my job is to, you know, sort of harangue you. I think I told my dean, I have no interest in being a diversity cop. I don't want to do that work, but I, I do want to be a fellow traveler. I do want to be a person who is leading, but also a person who is learning. You know, we hear conversations about, well, you know, I'm trying to get my head around what is happening with LBGTQIA plus students in that community. It requires contact. It requires immersion. You have to walk in the spaces that you don't necessarily know as your own spaces. And I, I think I'm lucky. I, I'm a kid who grew up in a military family. I went to 12 schools before I graduated from high school. I'm pretty comfortable going in places that <laughs> I don't know anybody. And what you find out is that there's something humbling and reinvigorating about being in spaces where you aren't part of the dominant identity group. Of course, I'm an African-American male. That's often the case for me. But even in spaces where other identities are ones that I'm not as connected to, it's good because you get to see the energy in the community. Mm -hmm. Just recently, I was in a uh, feminist bookstore in Austin, and a good colleague of mine, her son, wrote this amazing LBGTQ history. You know, just being in that space and hearing those stories and really seeing the impact a trans student said, you know, this is the first time I saw somebody who looked like me in a history book. You get chills. You're like, oh my gosh. And you realize how important it is. And you realize we have to be in solidarity with each other. So we're so afraid of, quote unquote, getting it wrong. But I think you earn credibility when you go into spaces willingly to learn and not in spaces to be seen. And then you build relationships with people. Mm. And you build relationships that are authentic and not just like, well, I have a gay friend I can call or I have a... Latinx friend I can call. So when you do invariably use the wrong pronoun or assume certain things, you've got support. And I think you lead by actually saying, I've done some things that didn't go well the first time, and I'm actually good, and I'm okay, I survived. And this is a concept that Rob D'Angelo talks about, white fragility. Like, I, I think for a lot of white folks who do this work, often feel like, well, if I get it wrong, I'm going to be chased out of the room and I'll be scarlet letter. I'm like, no, <laughs> like you, you need to build up capacity to hear people say the construction of whiteness is oppressive to people. And you didn't individually create whiteness, but you benefit from it until you actually start engaging with that. It'll be a problem. And to me, it's a challenge versus being told like you don't have any worth. I've actually talked to people who say, well, I want to be part of this conversation, but I don't have anything to say. I'm like, you have a lot to say. Um, I've had conversations with uh, two people. One's an author, and one is a, a filmmaker. And these are both people who identify as white, who are doing work about communities of color. Mm -hmm. And they both sort of express sort of this hesitation about doing that work. And I'm like, we need more white people doing work like this. Because other white people see you doing it, and you've shown a way of existing. And then secondly, you're reducing the burden on people of color who have been doing this work for forever, right? And it's one thing to be a person who says, I'm doing this brand new scholarship that never existed before. That's problematic. But to say, I'm part of a community doing this kind of work, and I'm adding to it, and I'm doing it in a way that recognizes my positionality, that's really powerful. Yeah. And it was funny because uh, the author was sort of uh, saying to me, he's like, oh, wow. You know, like, I never thought of it that way. I'm like, that's so important. I said, if a young white man is seeing you write about racial violence, that's going to leave an impact on him, especially the process that you went through. Right. Do you know, I wonder a little bit about universities, colleges, how can they not make this a check 
list item. I talk to people who have the role I have, either at the you know, college level or the university level, and we all have different iterations of our jobs. Almost all of us have equity or diversity in our title, but how does it actually look? And I, even at my campus, I've talked to my colleagues, and we have very different remits. For instance, I'm involved in structural things like hiring. You know, mm-hmm. So every job search we do, I'm actually the person responsible for making sure that we have thought about equity and diversity and inclusion in the job posting, in the assembling of the committees. That's what I get to do in my job. Some jobs have nothing to do with that. And so it does become sort of this discernment. The paint by numbers kind of approach is doomed to fail. You have to have institutional buy-in. The institutional leader has to say, Mm -hmm. this is critically important to my success. I want to see this happen. And frankly, has to be in the work. An institution where a leader says, well, you know, your job is to deal with diversity stuff while I'm off raising money. That is not a place you want to be. You want somebody saying, I am invested in this work and I want you to lead, but I'll be right next to you. I'll be in front of you at times. And I'll be behind you at other times. But the idea that this person's role is not something where we're going to offload it. I was at a conference a couple of years ago, and it happened that we had a group of chief diversity officers. And one common complaint was when something happens on my campus, the president steps up to the podium and walks away and says, you deal with this. And not so many words. Nobody wants to do that work. And of course, when it comes to resources, look, we need to make sure we're doing a better job retaining, recruiting, promoting our faculty of color, our students of color, our staff of color, and you don't get any responses to it, then that's a problem, right? So to me, the thoughtful institution will actually explore what do we need to do as an institutional ethos to improve, and climate's almost always the first thing. Like, how do people who are from underrepresented communities feel about being in the space? Mm -hmm. That has to be courageous because it's often not laudatory stuff. It's like, it's actually horrible here, and here's why it's horrible. So for me, my work is embedded in community. I'm in the community. It's part of what I do. I'm not on campus every day, and that's really important because my institution is not unlike a lot of other, we call PWIs, predominantly white institutions or traditionally white institutions. We have fraught relationships with communities of color. And so when people see you as an institutional agent, and they're like, okay, so you're from the university and you're in the space, why, you know? And for me, it's even more, I think, special because I'm from that community. So literally, I encounter people who I knew when I was in high school or oh, wow. we have those kind of connections or we have the same community connections and it builds a air of credibility. At the same time, I'm not gonna surrender my credibility to benefit the institution if the institution's not gonna back me up in the process, right? So again, this is the part of the job that's difficult. You're often sometimes speaking truth to power. You're critiquing the institution you work at. You're calling out things that you don't do well. And you have to have people who who are willing to hear that truth and then willing to do something about it. And I feel where I am, that's that's what's happening. And of course, it's it's a continual thing. I mean, I certainly have ideas that probably are pushing the envelope in ways that people are like, "Uh, not so much. But it's a healthy conversation. And the trap is certainly falling into this sort of, we just have it for the sake of having it versus we have accountability in the role we have, which is the community has to feel, I have a challenge, you know, how do I make a college of education feel more of a part of a community? And it's literally the physical community of Austin, Texas. It's also the state of Texas. It's also beyond that. We have alums 
all over the place. I went to England this summer, and I took students with me, and they're like, I'd love to work in the UK. So that's our community. It's not just the two blocks around the campus. That's been a challenge because people justifiably have suspicions because it has not gone well. It has not gone well for many institutions. You know, town-gown relationships, you know, universities often not as thoughtful as they could be about how they interact with communities. And we also tend to wall ourselves off, literally build walls. And part of what I do in my role is that I help to either open gates or take walls down altogether. And that's quite a uh, mission. You can't do it by yourself. You have to do it with colleagues and community. This is why in the space it's so important to be with other people. Like one of the best things we do is just simply getting together and talking about how do we handle the things that we do? How do we operate in spaces where there's less reception to our work, you know? I certainly do talk to uh, chief diversity officers about picking battles, right? But at the same time, you can't just completely ignore this particular school or unit because they seem to be hostile. You have to find ways to use the term that Derek Bell used, interest convergence. How do we get people to start thinking about how equity works in their favor? And I've actually gone to the point where I talk about competency and I talk about it's your job, right? It's not even about what you personally believe, but you have to do this to your job well. Richard Reddick is an associate professor and an associate dean for equity, community, engagement, and outreach at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm Jill Anderson. This is the Harvard EdCast produced by the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Thanks for listening.